This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Last week's episode 10 took my investigation to a new level in terms of the information that I received. It's been fantastic. This is Manhunt, Finding Kevin Paul. As more and more people listen to the podcast, the flow of information to Peter has gone from a trickle to a stream to a torrent. When you told the story of him driving across the farmer's land in the last episode, that really rang true. So he was an urchin, but not a hard nut. An urchin who was the designated driver. The sightings are again concentrated on three parts of the world, Spain, Dubai and Thailand, proving that while Peter may be in lockdown, the hunt for Kevin Paul certainly isn't. In this episode, Professor David Wilson discusses the psychological impact on a fugitive who can no longer move anywhere freely. Kevin Paul will return, I think, to uh, the basic traits of his personality, which will dictate his behaviour, which is that he likes to move on a lot. His desire to move on will mean that he will be much more likely to draw attention to himself because he is mobile at this stage when the vast majority of us are immobile. We're we're stuck in our homes. And not one, but two former girlfriends of Paul come forward to tell their stories. He'd open the door for me if we went out, flash the cash a bit, old-fashioned courtesy. He played being the alpha male, a gentleman even, and loved it. He was supposed to come and get me and didn't show up. I finally got a call saying he was in a police cell, as I said, for armed robbery. And he laughed and said, use your imagination. Episode 11, Mission Possible. Since episode 7, the first one from Spain, People have been contacting Peter on a daily basis. Here's one man who remembered a chilling encounter in Thailand a few years back. Hi Peter, I have a feeling I bumped into him around 2007-2008 in Pattaya, Thailand. I know it's an old out-of-date sighting, but it could be where he still is. It's very easy to hide here up-country. I always remember the encounter for two reasons. As he left, he told me he'd kick the fuck out of me if we were back home. I remember the size of him. Huge black leather jacket. I'm 5'11 and he was a lot taller than me. Very, very broad shoulders, short hair. It always stuck in my mind because of the threat coming out of nowhere. We were just having a laugh while he ate some food and drank a beer. He offered us both some of his chips. It was a very strange encounter because me and my friend were both really surprised by the threat of violence. It was totally unexplainable and uncalled for. The chance encounters all add a bit to the Paul story, but this week Peter was contacted separately by two women who had a relationship with Paul. Peter calls Professor David Wilson, the Emeritus Professor of Criminology at Birmingham City University, though to Peter he's simply David to talk about what their stories tell us about Paul. Hi. Hello, David. How are you? Yeah, uh, strange times, though, Peter. We're living in, aren't we? How are you coping with uh, 
being in isolation? Well, I'm absolutely fine. I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by my family. But, of course, I've got so much work to do um, trying to track down Kevin Powell that, that really it's impacting on me a lot less than I'm sure it is other people. I understand, but you're lucky. Uh, um, have you got access to a back garden, a front garden? Can you can you take a, a, a walk? Yeah, I've got a postage stamp of a back garden, and I've promised my wife I'll get out for a walk later on today, work permitting. Yeah, well, and I've been trying myself to keep active. We've got an, a nice back garden. I can walk in the countryside by myself, and so I've tried to keep my fitness up. But I'm really worried more for my daughter, who, of course, is a, a nurse and therefore is very much on the front line at the minute. And I know you've got a sister who's a nurse as well, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, my big sister, likewise, with your daughter, a frontline nurse. So um, deeply concerning times for our loved ones, indeed. And I'd be very interested to pick your brains on what lockdown might be doing to Kevin Powell. But before we do that, I spent a long time trying to track down a former girlfriend of Kevin Powell's, and I've done that. And if you take a listen now, obviously yeah. her testimony is voiced up by an actor. He was confident and chatty when I first met him, very at ease around women. But I soon learned that he could be violent and manipulative. On the outside, he was so charming, polite and engaging. You know, a real charmer who wanted to impress. But when it was just the two of us, that could change in a flash. He could be nasty, but as far as his friends were concerned, he was a big character, no more than that. I don't know if they simply didn't pick up on his menacing ways or they did and ignored it. I've read books about domestic abuse since I was with him and he fitted the bill as an abuser with his threatening ways. I kidded myself that he cared about me, but he was simply controlling me. He'd open the door for me if we went out, flash the cash a bit, old-fashioned courtesy. He played being the alpha male, a gentleman even, and loved it. You could tell he went to a good school. Yeah, he could handle himself in a restaurant. He was articulate, clever, and his manners were good. There was no shortage of cash, but I wouldn't say he threw it around. He'd pay for meals, but he didn't spend that much on drink. I rarely saw him drunk, actually. He definitely wanted to do something that earned him a lot of money. But I knew he could turn. He was jealous and possessive. Who was I talking to? Who had I seen? Why hadn't I picked up the phone? If I had something else on and he decided he wanted to see me, he would tell me he'd threaten the people I was with to make sure that I went out with him. He had this thing about his family not really loving him, but I don't know if that was true. Oh, his driving scared me. He was aggressive and nasty and drove too fast. He was regularly violent to me. And I lived in fear of him for years. I kidded myself that I was the only one in his life at the time, but I know now I wasn't. There will be others out there who have been through what I went through. 
Astonishingly, no sooner had I tracked down one ex-girlfriend than another one came forward to speak to me this week. Okay. Her testimony is also voiced up by an actor. I was with a girlfriend in a restaurant on a Saturday night. I was aware of this very tall man while I was in the queue for food, but before long he was sitting at our table asking for my number. It wasn't long before Christmas and I just ended a relationship which hadn't been very good, so I thought, why not? It turned out he was staying at a hotel in the city where I lived, so he asked me to go there. At one occasion he was with two teenage boys and he'd said he'd booked a room for them. He said he was keeping them safe. We had a few evenings out at bars and people would say he was exceptionally charming. We talked about theatre, even the opera. He wanted me to know how clever he was. His manners were great, but controlling. He told me where to book, decided where we went and what we'd order. He was the centre of everything. He was the most important person in the room and everyone else was subservient. But there was an edge. He was always aware of what was going on outside. One night some of his mates arrived in a big silver car, picked us up and took us back to my flat. They'd heard something and they needed him off the streets. I only went to see him in Liverpool once and he picked me up from the train but the whole night ended badly. For a start we had a table next to the fire exit so he could leave in a hurry if necessary. And he showed me a knife he was wearing down his trousers. It meant he couldn't sit properly. We did leave in the end. At one stage I thought it was going to kick off at the bar but It was tense and uncomfortable. He was proud of the knife. He told me the last time someone came to have a go at him, he took off one of their arms with it. Over the time we were together, he'd always come to see me in a different car. Beamers, usually flash, and he carried loads of cash. He asked me if I wanted to know what he did. I didn't. I knew it was bad. He told me he was an armed robber. I felt so naive. He said the cars and the cash made sense as he was putting money through a second-hand car dealership. Money laundering. I'll be honest. I found him quite fascinating. I didn't know anyone from that world and that lifestyle. He played me a video of his pit bull. It was horrible. The video had Paul driving to the Lake District and then letting his dog into a field of sheep, and it ripped some of them to death. Another video he was proud of was after a police chase where he and a mate showed the camera the wreck of the car they'd escaped from. He mentioned various places he'd hidden, and I remember Thailand coming up a lot. One night, he was supposed to come and get me and didn't show up. I finally got a call saying he was in a police cell. I asked how long he'd be there. He said, three months or life. I said, for armed robbery. And he laughed and said, use your imagination. I saw him one more time. By now, the manners and consideration were a thing of the past. He told me he was coming to see me, but with demand, I organised a female friend for him as well. 
Okay, David, what do those two testimonies tell us about Kevin Powell? It seems to me that uh, both girls are telling the same story. The man that they meet presents as one thing in public, but as another personality entirely when he's in private. He's charming, and they're not necessarily, it seems to me, put off by his kind of bad boy persona or by his reputation. I I didn't get the impression that these women were naive. They're fascinated by him, and he understands that too. And I suppose, Peter, what I'm picking up is that they're both describing a classic psychopathic personality. Now, uh, I, I hate when people use that label because there's so much bunk written about psychopathy that people think that they know what it's all about and usually that they don't. And for me, I think of it or try to explain it as a personality disorder which has three very different layers. Firstly, the person that's the psychopath has an arrogant, deceitful, interpersonal style which will involve him being deceitful, glib and grandiose. And if you think about some of the things that the women say, you can pick up that grandiosity. Paul's knowledge of opera, for example, sprung out at me when I heard the girlfriend speak. He went to a good school. There's lots of money. He flashes the cash. There's that glib and grandiose interpersonal style. Secondly, the psychopath has a very defective emotional experience, which means that they show very little, if any, remorse. They won't take responsibility for what they've done. They have poor empathy. And in relation to what those two women said with Paul, you get the sense that he doesn't actually understand the impression that he's creating on them because he's so wrapped up in himself, he doesn't care the impression that he's making on them. And then the third layer would be behavioural manifestations of irresponsibility, impulsiveness, and constantly sensation-seeking. And again, what stood out from what these women said was, for example, driving his car too fast. That's very typical of that kind of irresponsibility that the psychopath would show. But I think, again, you've got to remember that initially, at least, psychopaths are fun to be around, They say things and do things that you or me would never dream of doing. And it's only very gradually you realise that they're dangerous. And of course, by then, when you realise that they're dangerous, that the private reality is different to the public impression, you've already allowed them to get close. And that closeness is used by them to manipulate you. Another day passes, and Peter hears from someone else who knew Paul well. This time, it's a former mate who used to go to Liverpool matches with him. He tells Peter there's a more nuanced side to the Paul character. I wanted to get in touch. 
me and my friends follow the podcast and it was something you said about historical stuff that what people did in the past may shape their future that prompted me to get in touch. My mates and Kev's mates all knew each other through Liverpool College, but also travelling to watch Liverpool. I've heard you mention that you thought Kev was a member of the Urchins firm. Well, he was, but perhaps not in the way you'd think. Kev loved his cars. It was the one flash thing he loved, so he was happy to hire a minibus to take us to the games. He dressed like a right scruff, but as long as he had some wheels, he was happy. When you told the story of him driving across the farmer's land in the last episode, that really rang true. So he was an urchin, but not a hard nut. An urchin who was the designated driver. He ran with the firm, but Kev in himself is not a hard lad. He's got the size and the front for sure, and if he's confronted, he could shout and scream and exaggerate the Scouse accent and all of that, but he wasn't a fighter. I remember we were away at Leicester, and one of the undercover policing units, everyone knew him, said to me, You're Parley's mate, aren't you? He's a tough lad. And I just laughed. <laughs> a lot of blokes then, if they had something about them in that way, did time on the doors at the city's bars and nightclubs, and Kev never did. He pointed out that Kev was brought up in Mossley Hill in a nice family. The fighting wasn't in him. If he'd come from Norwich Green or Croxteth, then maybe, but he didn't. He just wasn't a natural fighter. Hot-headed, yes, definitely. We were at a motorway service station on the way to a match and Kev decided he wanted to impress the young kids on the bus so he picked up a whole pizza and walked off without paying for it. Sure enough, security came out and he ended up having to pay for it. <laughs> Hot-headed, yes, criminal mastermind, no. The big cheeses who ran crime wouldn't trust him. They let him run the kids because they looked up to him but the powers that be saw him as a bit of a clown. I've heard the idea that he was trying to prove himself. When we heard about his alleged involvement in the murders, we were shocked. We thought, if you've done that, that's a big step for you, lad. No shortage of information then, but a real shortage of options for Paul. It's hard to be on the run when you're not allowed to run. Peter and David get together to discuss the psychological effect this would have on the fugitive. If Kevin Powell is in Spain, Dubai or Thailand at the moment, all those three places are in lockdown. What is lockdown doing to somebody with the personality like, like, like Kevin Powell? By and large, so we're talking about two different things. We're talking about first personality and then secondly, how that underlying personality will affect behaviour. We tend to think of our personality as fixed. Now, if we leave to one side, where does our personality come from? Are we born with it or is it made through the people that we are nurtured by and the people we are interrelate with? By and large, we tend to think that our personality is stable over time, albeit it can change over time, especially when we age or if we have something traumatic happen to us, like developing a brain injury, whereby people will say, oh, you know, they've got a really changed personality since such and such a thing happened to them. But we think that our personality is by and large a rather stable component in terms of our identity. And therefore, there's that phrase that I've used once or twice in previous episodes, that the best indication of future behaviour 
is previous behaviour. Because by and large, if our personality is stable, that therefore will predict how we are likely to behave because of that personality in the situation that we would find ourselves. Now, where does that lead to in terms of thinking about Kevin Paul? Well, we know that Kevin Paul, from all the research that you've done, all the things that we know about him that have been published about him, that other people have said about him, that Kevin Paul has never really hunkered down. Kevin Paul didn't try and find metaphorically a desert island, grow a long beard, and then start reading poetry and refuse to socialize with other people. We know instead that Kevin Paul has gone to various different locations, but he's never particularly tried to hide his identity. He's very confident in being Kevin Paul. He uh, speaks with a Liverpool accent. He's never tried to hide who he is. So even though you and I are in lockdown and we're debating, you know, can we go out for a walk, uh, keeping social distancing, when are we going to go shopping? Even though you and I are taking that view, because that's the government advice, Kevin Parr will react as he has reacted in the past, which is that he'll travel. He'll not be particularly that concerned about hiding his personality. Obviously, there are greater difficulties though, uh, Peter, aren't there? Because it's very difficult to travel in a formal sense because they, there are fewer trains, the airlines have closed down, it's very difficult to get passage on a ship. But we know that in the past, Kevin Powell has been able to overcome those problems and that's what I think he'll be doing now. He will be reacting uh, in the way that he has always reacted because by and large, the best indication of future behaviour is past behaviour. So how's he going to react if he's listening to this podcast now? Well, there are quite clearly, and this is one of the difficulties about being as reductionist as I often am, I'm fully aware that people can respond in ways which are going to confound or change their behavior because of what they've heard. I learned that the hard way, Peter. I learned that the hard way in Ipswich in 2006, where, as you will remember, five sex workers were murdered. And I foolishly said on the news, I gave a kind of profile of the person that I thought would be behaving in this way and didn't really think too much about having done that. And immediately afterwards, the killer uh, changed his behavior. And we subsequently discovered that he had been listening to what I had said on the television. So I've got no doubt that some people can change their behavior, but it's very difficult for someone like Paul to change his behavior given how ingrained these patterns are in his personality. And I think whilst he might try and do something dramatic to show that everything that Emeritus Professor Wilson has said is bunk, but I think, again, he'll re revert to type, which is that he won't hunker down, he'll try and travel, 
because ultimately I think he gets bored very quickly. I'm really interested that you brought sex workers into the conversation because I've been doing a lot of work this week, having been alerted to the possibility that Paul would use sex workers. If we look at the Costa Blanca, Benidorm and those surrounding areas, there's a sex industry there. If we look at Dubai, I've found out that there's a plentiful and prevalent sex industry in Dubai. Of course, though, the state doesn't want it talked about too much. And Thailand, well, that speaks for itself. Paul has been a philanderer. He's had multiple partners. Do you think he would engage the services of sex workers because he can control them, because he has what would appear to be links to other criminals and criminality? Well, the answer to all of those questions is yes. And one of the the key behaviours of somebody who has underlying psychopathic traits would be multiple sexual partners. And obviously, if you're buying sexual services through engaging a, a sex worker, you can have greater control over the particular person asking for particular services to be performed that you might not be able to engage with if you were not paying for those services. However, remember, multiple sexual partners. That would be one of the classic ways that we would talk about psychopathy. And of course, the more that Kevin Powell becomes notorious, the more difficult it will be for him to establish any kind of relationship with an everyday woman that he might encounter in the street or through a network of friends because they ultimately will be wary of establishing any relationship. Think also about one of the things that we've discussed previously. He can't really put down roots. He can flash the cash. He's great fun to be around for a week, a couple of weeks, a month at most. But ultimately, he knows that he's going to move on. So it's usually much easier for him to engage uh, with sex workers because they would be less likely to go to the police afterwards to report the fact that they had had a client who resembled the man that is the most wanted man in Britain, whose name is Kevin Powell. I think we're reaching that tipping point, to be perfectly honest with you. I think the dam is being breached because, yet again, after last week's episode, a fantastic number of people got in touch with me. It makes me laugh. If I put information out there that is not quite right, for example, last week I said we thought Leon Cullen was smuggled in a washing machine. Somebody got in touch with me and said, actually, close, but not quite. It was a dryer because, of course... <laughs> There are less mechanics in a dryer, so there's more space inside it. You see, if we go back to one of the central themes that you and I have been discussing, which is personality and behaviour, I get the sense that Peter Blexley is completely and utterly 
frustrated. It seems to me that your personality is one about action. You like to take action. You like to constantly be moving forward. And I'm picking up the sense in which you're feeling a bit frustrated that that ability to move forward at the minute is constrained by what's happening in our culture. David, if you could see the mountain of post-it notes that I am surrounded with, with things to do scrawled on them, I am far from frustrated. I've got so many people to reach out. I've got so much to strategize and plot and plan that I am literally at this from morn till night at this desk. And I so believe that this global lockdown, as dreadful as it is, of course, is going to work to my advantage. Because as we squeeze the planet, as we make the world smaller, eventually when he pops up, I think somebody's going to be there to slap the handcuffs on. I'm going to sound like a senior police officer giving one of those press conferences, standing out the front of a police station and saying, it only takes one call. But of course, they're right, and, and it's true. Next time, Small World. People are beginning to realise that this is a live investigation being carried out in real time. When I get things right, when I put information out there that is correct and has never been heard before, people are saying, this guy knows what he's talking about. And it's wonderful. I'm getting locations, specifics, intricate detail. The dam is crumbling. I am going to find him. Produced by Lewis Borge Cardona, Manhunt, Finding Kevin Paul, is written and edited by Mark Sandell. Narrated by Sinetra Sarkar, the series is a six-foot-six and five-live production for BBC Sounds. Dr. Ruja persuaded millions of people to join her financial revolution. And then she disappeared. One of Europe's richest women, someone who looks set to change the world, had vanished into thin air. I'm Jamie Bartlett, and for the last six months, I've been on the hunt to try to find the missing crypto queen. And it gets far weirder than I thought possible. Kidnapping, kidnapping, killing. All oh, those from the traditional bank. This is the trick that they do. It's cult. It's very cult-like. It starts to get very, very, very scary. Very, very, very fast. Subscribe to The Missing Crypto Queen on BBC Sounds. Hold up. 